Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back with you. Um, I know some people have been coming and going. Just a little recap. We looked at the Shema first session. Seems like a long time ago. It was yesterday, wasn't it? I think we looked at Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then we looked at the type of love that Jesus demands from his followers, the cost of love in Matthew 10 and how he, he calls for his disciples to love him in that same type of love that God says in in Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament, a wholehearted, complete love for God. In a sense, what we're doing now this evening is turning to, well, this has got to be the most famous passage on love in the whole Bible, isn't it? Everybody knows this passage, whether it's read at funerals or weddings. um, We're familiar with this text. It's one of the most famous passages in the whole of the Bible. And I've called this the searing searchlight of love because this seems like a lovely text, isn't it? It's read often, as I've said, at weddings. Um, And it's all about love and it's all lovely, isn't it? But let me suggest to you, as we go through this text, and we'll see this is why it's called a searchlight, a searing searchlight. It really lights up our lives and it was lighting up the Corinthians' lives and challenging them about their behavior and also giving them a vision of, of what love is. So we've talked quite a bit about love. This chapter, in a sense, gets into defining what it is. It really gets into the nitty-gritty of, if someone asks us, well, what is love anyway? This chapter is really getting into the nitty-gritty of saying and showing us what love is. Somebody, um, as, as, I was, as I was researching and writing this book on love that I've, I've done, I found this the most difficult chapter personally to write. I found it the most personally challenging. And it's really, really annoying now, after, after writing something on love, when I'm ranting about something or being generally obnoxious at home, my wife says, didn't you write a book on love? Shouldn't you go read it? It's really, really annoying. You know, there's this, you know, it's lifetime ammunition there. But it really is, it's a personally challenging chapter. So um, as we go through this, um, reflect on it. And I'll try and give space, and it's good that we're doing some, some of that after this talk, to reflect And where is this text speaking into my life? Somebody has very wisely said about the contemporary culture in which we live. If you take from John's gospel, his wonderful statement in, in 1 John, God is love. Our contemporary culture has switched that around to say love is God. Love has become what is idolized, searched for, looked for. And in love, we find all our fulfillment and meaning. Somebody's, he's, some uh, philosopher has put it like this. The more individualistic we become, the more we expect love to be a secular journey for the soul, a final source of meaning and freedom, a supreme standard of value, a key to the problem of identity, a solace in the face of rootlessness, a desire for wor- a, the worldly and simultaneously a desire to transcend it, a redemption from suffering, and a promise of eternity, or all of these at once. So we invest a huge amount in love. Love is is almost like a doctrine of salvation. Love has become God in our contemporary 
culture. And so I think that's maybe one reason why 1 Corinthians 13 is so widely known and used and everybody loves it, because it's almost like a hymn to love. It's like a praise of love, and it's a definition of love. But so we can almost say, well, were the Beatles basically right, you know? All you need is love, and I'm not going to do the song. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there karaoke later? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now you might you might think there's you might hear a butt coming, and as some preacher once said, some butts are bigger than other people's butts. <laughs> but this is a big butt here, okay? There's a major butt. As we get into this text, we begin to see how it's actually just not a lovely hymn of love and praise of love. It actually is really searching into the Corinthians' lives. You'll know a bit about Corinth. They were pretty messed up. They had all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, they were divided. They were following different leaders. They were tolerating all sorts of sexual immorality. They were ambitious. They were full of pride. And Paul keeps saying to them, you know, do you not know? Do you not you think they thought they knew a lot, and Paul's bringing them, he's puncturing their balloon all the way through the letter and bringing them back to reality. And this chapter is sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14, which is all about spiritual gifts and tongues and prophecy, and they were evaluating these gifts and really taking them as a sign that we've arrived here. We're, we're spiritually, we've arrived, we've got it sorted, God's spirit is powerfully present, and they were almost taking that as a, a sign to go and do as they liked. And Paul is putting this chapter right between chapters 12 and 14 to say, look, as you use spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues, it's all going to be of no value unless it is done in love. So this is, a, this is a wonderful chapter about love, but it's also a very searching chapter about to their behavior. So let me, um, let me do this. Um, I don't know if you know what that is. That's uh, a wrestling match in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And apparently every few years, there's a big fight breaks out, basically, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, it's between, I think, Coptic Christians and, oh, I'm not even Orthodox, I think, uh, different branches of the Christian church who own different bits of the church. And they're basically competing and fighting over who can do what. And the police are often called, and there's big riots and all sorts of stuff. That's somewhat ironic, isn't it? At the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, you have anger, hatred, violence between Christians. That's an adventure in missing the point, isn't it? Somewhat. Here's another one. This was, uh, this was just on the internet. This is just a silly example. Some witty person said, this is Australian bread. And if you see the comment, the guy says at the bottom, hey, you posted upside down. He doesn't really get the joke, okay? So he's missed the point of the joke, all right? This one, Abraham Lincoln quote about the internet, and somebody says, well, this couldn't be a quote from him. There wasn't the internet back then. <laughs> Adventures in missing the point. Christianity without love is an adventure in missing the point. And that's really what Paul is saying here. So let's look at these first few verses. If you have a Bible open, we're going to follow the text reasonably closely here. So it be, might be helpful if you have access to the text. And he says basically a few things at the beginning, the first three verses. Love gone missing. Love gone AWOL. It's, it's what happens. What's the significance if love is missing from the church? And this is what he's saying. He gives, he gives some examples. Verse one, without love, a meaningless noise, like a resounding gong, clanging cymbal. Um, 
And if we'd had a drum kit up here, maybe I'd have got the, got the drummer to come up and make terrible noise, or maybe I should have just had a go and it would have been terrible noise. But it's, it's like a clashing music-less noise. It's horrible. It's, think of the worst music you can think of, turned up to the highest volume, and it's all conflicting, and it's just making a terrible noise. Without love, it's like this meaningless noise. But the first thing you see what Paul's focusing in on here is speech, isn't it? He's saying... Without love, um, a meaningless noise. I'll just get the text here. Um, and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love. So that he's focusing on speech first. And they valued tongues. So what, even if I have wonderful language, maybe of a gift of tongues, gift of <coughs> communication, wonderful gift of, of language uh, given by God, to the highest degree, but if I have not loved that speech is of no value. I think it's a very challenging verse for any preacher, any writer, anybody who uses words and language. Whether you're blogging, whether you're whatever you're doing, you might be on Facebook or the internet, you might have thousands of followers and be well liked and, and wonderful, but if without love all of those words become meaningless. Maybe we could paraphrase Macbeth. Without love, I'm full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, is what Paul is saying here. And do you see how the way Paul personalizes that? Without love, I am nothing. He's, he's including himself here. And of course, the Corinthians, if you remember back to the start of Corinthians, Paul says, you know, I... I didn't come with wise and eloquent words. They the Greek, these Greeks and Corinthians loved eloquence. They loved philosophy and language. Paul says, without love, it's of no value. Verse 2, without love, I am nothing. And then he, he focuses on prophecy and mysteries and knowledge. So he's talking about speech, verse 1. Then he goes into knowledge, a revelation of knowledge from God that he could have a prophetic word. And even without love, all of those wonderful gifts... And, it, and this knowledge is high. It's like an extraordinary ability to understand stuff, a, a revelation from God himself. Um, and faith that can move mountains might bring to mind what Jesus said. If you have faith, you can move mountains. So even if you have a, a faith that Jesus talks about that is of incredible power and significance, yet without love, that faith is worthless. It's a very strong thing that Paul is saying here. So he's talked about speech, he talks about knowledge and mysteries. And so somebody said, really, as, as Corinthians starts here, it says, basically, they're all into spiritual gifts and power. He says, spiritual gifts minus love, here's the formula, equals zero. Basically, is what Paul's saying. And that's chapters 12 and 14. It's all about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts minus love equals nothing. And then, then he, he talks about a third a measure of something which is admired. And he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and have not love, well, it's of no value. And in a sense, think about the, there's a progression here of, of, of the examples. So speech, knowledge, and now even the extravagant giving. I don't know anybody who has given all they have away. I don't know if you do, I doubt it. Some people give amazingly sacrificially, but this is an extreme example. If I give everything I have away to the poor, <coughs> generously, 
it's, so it's an extreme example. So the most extreme example of generosity and giving that you can ever imagine. And Paul's saying, even if you do that, it's of no value whatsoever. I gain nothing. You know, we think maybe uh, giving maybe 10% away is pretty extreme. That's like a big stretch. Here's Paul saying 100%. And if you do even do that, and then he, he takes it even further. So he's talking about all he has. And then he says, even if I give my body, you can't get much more committed than that. That's who you are. Even if I give my body away to hardship and suffering, if I do not have love, I gain nothing. That's the costliest self-sacrifice, isn't it? You give yourself. You actually give your physical self. And he's saying, even that giving gains me nothing. So you sort of get the point here that love's important, is <laughs> what Paul is saying. And that's a very strong start to this text of how central and significant and vital love is within the church. And he's speaking into the Corinthians' lives and saying, lads, you've got your priorities wrong. And unless you get this sorted out, you're really just messing about and you're missing the point. It's almost a little bit like the Old Testament finishes with Malachi. I was very struck with the image in Malachi when the Israelites had their worship all mixed up and they were doing stuff wrong and, and they weren't offering God their best. And, and Malachi's word to the people of the Israel was, you know, you're better off shutting your temple doors and stop doing what you're doing. Stop meeting together. Stop sacrificing. Stop worshiping God. <laughs> Shut the doors. Go away, please, because you're making it worse. And it's that sort of uh, importance of love at the, at the center of the Christian faith. If it's not there, we're actually better off shutting the church doors because actually we're doing more harm than good. I mean, I, I don't think that's an extreme interpretation of what Paul's saying here. So it's pretty important love um, is, is pretty significant. Well, let's look at... Um, sorry, I keep forgetting these slides because they're behind me and I don't see them. So uh, that's what we've done. Now, I'm going to... No, I'm going to come back to that. There's a little diagram I want to use. So what he does in these next few verses, and, and again, just stay with me in the text, there are 15 descriptions of love, and seven of them say what love does positively, and eight of them do what love isn't. Uh, so I've just got 15 points to go, so you're okay. We're only, we've gone another couple of hours, haven't we, Steve? That's all right. Uh, <laughs> so don't worry. No, we'll go through this relatively quickly. And... What he does here is, is, is fantastic because he really earths for us what it actually is love. What does it look like in practice? Because sometimes we say, is it just a feeling? Is it just a warm, nice feeling? For Paul, he's saying, no, it's really action and it's, a, and it's a pathway. And it's actually quite a deliberate way of living. So let me show you this diagram. Now, some of you at the back, unless you, well, you're, you're a lot younger than me. Maybe you've got great eyesight. It doesn't really matter if you can see this or not. But this is a, a a picture which I found very helpful that somebody who is a, a psychotherapist, she comes in and teaches some in IBI now and again and does some stuff. And I find this diagram really helpful because it, it outlines really what you do when something, when somebody hurts you or does something to you where you're hurt or you're angered or you're frustrated or you're disappointed. So what this diagram does, at the top, it's, it's just, here is the wrong done by somebody else. So I'm sure we can all think of an example in our minds. Somebody has hurt us in some way, disappointed us, 
<clears throat> now, what's our reaction to that? The normal healthy reaction, it's not unusual, usually is anger of some sort. We're, we're, we're hurt and anger is often a result of that. If somebody has done something wrong, mistreated us, misspoken about us, taken advantage of us or whatever, whether it be in work or family or wherever, usually we're, we're, our reaction is anger of some sort. And anger is quite a normal reaction. But here's the thing that I think she was really helpful in saying. It's what you do with that hurt and that anger is the key thing for a Christian. Where do you go with it? And she sort of basically was saying there are two pathways here. Now, this is a diagram. It's, it's simplified, obviously. Life is messy. But in general, there are two pathways to walk. And she's saying one of them is, is the pathway of, of unforgiveness and hatred and resentment. So as you go down that, do you hold on to that hurt? You're faced with a choice. Do you hold on to that hurt? Do you nurture it? Does it turn into resentment? Does it then turn into a bitterness against that person? Does it then turn into a corrosive desire to do that person harm? So, like on the soccer pitch, you know, it's better to get to them before they get to you sort of thing. Or if they've got to you, you're going to get them back. It's that re revenge, that, that desire to do ill to that person who's done ill to you. And that leads to hatred, bitterness. And in extreme examples, it'll go to end up in physical violence. It'll end up in murder. And Jesus, of course, says... that brother who hates somebody else if you hate your brother it's like you're doing murder to them in your heart and 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 jesus speaks of that so that's one pathway the other pathway is very difficult and it's the pathway of love and this is where love this is why i'm calling love a searing searchlight it really searches into our lives and it's a challenge but it's the pathway of life so let's go back up to the top and the, and the wrong done against you, the anger and the hurt. What do you do with it? Do you then act to let it go? And that's not saying what's done to you. And I'm sure as in a group like this, there have been people who have been deeply hurt by other people. Not your own fault, but somebody has done serious wrong to you. It's not minimizing that at all. But does that wrong then define you for all of your life? Or do you act in some way to try and let it go, to move beyond it, and not to have that person control you by what they did to you? And do you then move to an acknowledgement of that hurt? So that's not minimizing, it's not justifying, it's not dismissing it, but it's recognizing that it's, it's done. And then do you move on? A movement towards letting that hurt go. A movement towards forgiveness. And forgiveness is not a simple, easy thing. It can take a long time. It can take years. It can take a lifetime to work through forgiveness sometimes. But it's a movement towards letting that hurt go. And it's a movement then towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation is, you can often forgiveness, but for reconciliation to happen, it needs both parties. So the other person might never actually acknowledge even the hurt they've done to you. And often that relationship might never be reconciled, but you can do your part in offering that forgiveness. And that's a letting go of that hatred and that bitterness and that corrosiveness. And that's a movement towards loving even your enemy, which Jesus talks about. Love your enemies, he says. Wow, 
that's probably the most difficult command of many that Jesus makes. Love your enemies. That's a bonkers thing to say. Who does that? You know, you want your enemy as your enemy does you harm. How do you love them? Well, it's loving them by not letting them control you, offering them love and forgiveness. Whether they accept it or not is up to them. And that leads at the bottom to a freedom. To a freedom from that hurt that was done for you doesn't define you the rest of your life. Love lets that go and moves beyond it. So it's a choice. Now I think I find that really helpful for myself as I've thought about it. But I find it really helpful because she happened to do this just when I was trying to work through 1 Corinthians. And I thought this is actually exactly what Paul is talking about in this chapter. He's talking about two pathways of love in this chapter. And he has, as I said, eight descriptions of what love isn't. And he has seven descriptions of what love is. So he's talking about the left-hand one. He has eight descriptions of love does not do this. And he has seven descriptions of what love do, does do the right-hand one. So let's, let's very quickly look at these. And I'll just sketch through them. And the text almost speaks for itself. Let's look at the, the way of love uh, first. The way of love. There, there they are. Those are seven positives. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not easily... Uh, provoked, it's not defensive, it doesn't just rush to retaliation, that's patience. Um, a capacity to endure injustice, you're not refusing to react and be controlled by others. Kindness is a really interesting one because often God is described as kind in the Old, in the Old Testament and the New Exodus. God is compassionate and gracious, showing a slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands forgiving wickedness. He's, this compassion and kindness of God. Uh, in Hosea, God is the one who kindly woos and shows compassion and woos back his unfaithful bride. In Ephesians, God has shows his kindness and mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2. Kindness and patience. We have truth. Love rejoices in the truth. That sounds great. My goodness, it's a challenging thing, isn't it? To speak the truth when truth needs to be spoken. It's sometimes much easier not to speak the truth. And I think this is such a challenge for the church to be a truthful community. That Christians, we speak the truth. Now, we speak it in love, but we speak the truth. It's a great temptation in the church to hide the truth. When things go wrong, we get the PR department out and we mask the truth and we do our best spin on it. And sadly, in the history of the church in Ireland, hasn't it been a tragedy when the truth of when things have gone terribly wrong, the truth has been hidden, it's been suppressed. Those who've tried to speak the truth have been silenced, and it's a disaster. The church has to be a place of truth and confession and repentance. We got it wrong. We need to speak the truth. As I was writing this, there were two examples in the press which really struck me. Right at the time, there was, a, there was a big report into abuse in the Church of England uh, going back, you know, a number of years. It came out a couple of years ago, and they'd done a big investigation into sort of sexual abuse within the church and how the church dealt with that, and they'd brought out a big report, and then they'd reviewed the report, and the report said, well, yes, you've made some efforts to speak the truth, but basically, you still suppressed. You put the best gloss on it you could. You didn't really bring out the truth as much as you could. And right at the same time, there was a 
many of you are probably aware of, of what's going on in Willow Creek in America and Chicago with Bill Hybels, and there were accusations made against Bill Hybels, who was a senior pastor, globally famous pastor, and he was accused by several women of, of uh, sexually inappropriate behavior. And those women had been silenced, they had been pretty well expelled, they'd been ignored, the church had closed ranks. There was so much to pay for, or there was so much at stake when the truth comes out, there was a lot of money, there's reputation, there's status, there's all of those things. There can be a lot of reasons why you don't want the truth to come out. And, the, and what happened there has been ongoing for several years. The church has slowly moved towards telling the truth and recognizing the truth. And the entire leadership of that church resigned. Bill Hybels left, all the elders left, the entire leadership was, because the church didn't, at the time, rejoice in the truth they didn't they tried to suppress the truth and it's easy to look at others but that's a challenge for us isn't it to speak the truth not to hide the truth rejoice in the truth this is a searching searchlight the searing searchlight of love love is not easy it searches into our lives and we're to be truth tellers then um then the four positives are all next together um love in the words of the authorized version, it's a lovely language here. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Uh, and somebody else has translated, I think this is a nicer, really good translation. It's basically saying there's nothing love cannot face, no limit to its faith, its hope, and endurance. And it pictures love as a limitless creative force Transfer, transforming Christians to face whatever obstacles come in life. There's nothing can overcome the power of love. To face whatever comes, powerful love. We can face life with strength and hope because love is powerful. There's nothing it cannot face. So here's love as a challenge to be honest, truthful, patient, kind. But love is also powerful to help us face difficulty and trials. That's the way of love. So it's, it's a pretty far-reaching, deep chapter, this, isn't it? Let's look at some of the negatives. And I'm not going to spend loads of time on these, but there, it's interesting that Paul, sometimes describing something, it's easier to say what it's not. It's almost a way of saying what something is. Love is not envious. Um, and this is where, as we read this, some of these can really hit home personally, can't they? And I know, I know some of these really hit home with me. Envy, being filled with a, an envious um, of, the, um, of the success or the abilities of other people. Paul has told the Corinthians, there's jealousy and quarreling among you. You know you're envious of each other. You're competing with one another. The church is not a place of competition. We're not here to compete with one another. We're not here to get into positions of status or whatever. We're here to encourage one another, bless one another, release one another into ministry. That's what church is all about. That's what leadership is all about. It isn't about the person leading. It's about the leader releasing others into ministry. This is the body image of Paul. We're not competing with each other. Love doesn't boast. It's not about the self and what I've achieved and what I've done. And the Corinthians were doing a fair bit of that as well. And I think this is a really challenging one. In our culture of social media and Facebook and all of those things, um, we present an image of ourselves to the world. And, and many people have said we live in a pretty narcissistic age where it's all about the self and promoting the self, getting out there and, and putting on your best version 
of ourselves. And there's great temptations for boasting. Pride, love is not proud, arrogant, puffed up. And already he's told the Corinthians earlier, you think you're all into knowledge and you're sort of puffed up. Knowledge puffs up. Again, if I link this back to Bible college, one of the great dangers of doing Bible college stuff and getting qualifications and studying the Bible, one of the great dangers is spiritual pride. Oh, I know the answer to that. I've done that. I know more than you do. And it's sort of knowledge can puff up rather than make us humble. Love doesn't dishonor others, verse 5. It doesn't, I think it suggests some sort of shameful behavior here. And I think the Corinthians were also rejoicing in shameful behavior. Earlier on in chapter 5, I think a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law and they thought this was fine. So there was almost like a a rejoicing in, in their freedom to do whatever they liked. And Paul's saying, no, love does not dishonor other people. Love does not, love just doesn't do what it wants to do, regardless of the consequences for other people, because that's just damaging. That's just going to hurt others. Within the body of the church, we're here to honor one another, to be kind to one another, not to be a stumbling block to others. So maybe your conscience allows you to do certain things and gives you freedom, but it doesn't mean you should do it because it might cause others to stumble. So it isn't dishonoring others. Love isn't self-seeking. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. So you get the sense here. It's, a, it's not about the self. It's a life which is seeking to bless others. That's what life is about. So that's the description of love. Love is not easily angered. doesn't keep record of wrongs. And it doesn't delight in evil. So it's really the opposite of love in all of these, in patience and kindness. And it's, remember that diagram, going back to that diagram, it's, it's not holding on to resentment and bitterness and seeking the other person wrong. Maybe as we've gone through those descriptions, it's good to reflect on our own lives. It's good to reflect on where is that searchlight search looking into my life in terms of the positives and also the negatives. Um, and Paul speaks these words. He knows the Corinthians well, but I think what's wonderful, he doesn't do this to condemn them. He's doing this to give a vision of what the Christian life is about. The very purpose of being in Christ is to be a community of love and compassion and grace and kindness, which is serving one another. The whole point of being a Christian And the whole point of the church is to be a community of radical love in the world and to be a light to that world. And this is why, let's let's turn to the end, the last few verses. Love is the greatest, Paul says. So I call Paul the apostle of love. Love is everywhere in his letters. It's all the way through all his letters. Every letter that he writes to the churches, he's encouraging them to love one another. He rejoices when Christians are loving one another. He says, I hear of your love for one another. I think it's wonderful. You know, and isn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful if our churches and this church is known? Oh, I know those people. They're a community which are of radical love who love one another, care for one another, look after one another, whatever it costs. That's the witness of the church in the world, to be the communities of love and light in the world. Love is the greatest. Let's look at why he says that. This magnificent description of love, he switches then at the end to give like a theological reason why love is so significant. 
And he's basically comparing it with all the other things the Corinthians thought were important. He says, you know, tongues and, and prophecy and all of those good things, he's not saying anything negative about them, but they're not permanent. They'll be here for a season, but they won't last forever. These gifts, they're temporary. They will cease, tongues will be stilled. Even knowledge will pass away, verse eight. And verses 11 to 12, it's like, it's as if the, these gifts are given to a child, but when that child grows up, the child will ha, no longer have need for them. So it's like li- leaving those things that were childish behind and in the future. So this is, a, this is a future vision for the Christian faith. This is a, a vision of when the kingdom has fully come, when we see God face to face. This eschatological age, when the kingdom has come finally, there will be no need of gifts There will be no need of further knowledge because we will see God face to face. It's a wonderful passage. And he says later in Corinthians, at the end of time, God will be all in all. We'll see him as he is. We'll be resurrected to new life. The kingdom will have come. And now we only see like in a reflection in a mirror, which which is dark. We see something about the future. But in the future, we'll see clearly that mirror will be gone. We'll see God face to face. We'll be in the very presence of God in the new creation and so Paul's theology is eschatologically, it's, which is the future, it's all shaped by this future hope. And he's thinking theologically about love in light of the future and saying, what's the future look like? What's the future all about for the Christian faith? What's it all about? Well, love is at the core of that future life in the new creation. In the new creation, you won't need faith because you'll see God face to face. Faith is hoping in what you do not see now then we'll see God face to face. You, in the future, you won't need hope because your hope will be fulfilled. But what does continue in the future is love. As John would say, God is love. The future is the new community of the people of God, being in the presence of God and living in a community of love. So faith will be temporary. Hope will be temporary. Love is the greatest because love is eternal and love is the very nature of God. And love is the very purpose of the people of God to be communities of love. That's Paul's framework. Paul is always thinking future orientated and how that impacts the present. And so let me put it this way. When we think of love as, oh, lovely, love is lovely and love is nice. It is. Yeah, I'm all for love. I'm not against love. Not at all. But what Paul is saying here is that as we live here and as you work out your faith in your community of Christ City Church, as you love one another, you're doing something profoundly, spiritually significant. There's power in this love that we have for one another. Because what Paul would say is this love that we have for one another is actually a sign of the future right here in the present. It's a sign of God's future age. It's a sign of our whole destiny and purpose is being worked out right here in the present as we love one another. So there's a tremendous spiritual significance to love. It isn't just a good thing that we do, it is. It builds relationships, but it's theologically, spiritually, the most significant sign of the Christian life here in the present as a foretaste of God's kingdom in the future. You can't get a higher place of love in the theology of Paul and and of all of scripture. And later on, he tells the Corinthians, I'm just about finished now, he says to the Corinthians, he says this right at the end of Corinthians, he says, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says, do everything in love. That's pretty all-embracing, isn't it? You do everything 
in love. And I think he would say the same to us today. And that's the power and the vision and the significance of love and the theology of Paul. And that's for the Christians in Corinth and it's for us today. Amen. Thank you.